Welcome back to episode number 172 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have on the call Kevin Cardwell, combustible dust consultant with Air Dusco Engineering and Design Services, based out of Memphis, Tennessee. And we're talking about common challenges in combustible dust incident investigation. Kevin, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you, Chris. Uh, happy to be here. I'm excited to have you on. And just to confirm, are you based in Memphis or is that where Air Dusco is as well? I forgot to ask before the call. Our office is in Memphis. I actually now work out of my home, which is just in uh, in the suburbs of Memphis in North Mississippi. Okay. I want to make sure people knew where whereabouts you were located because I think it's going to be a really interesting interview. And my guess is that folks are going to want to kind of follow up and, and learn some more about you and your work. Absolutely. We had Kevin on way back in episode 79. So what is that? That's 100 episodes. It's almost two years ago. Talking about challenges in baghouse maintenance. He's been with Airdusco going on 25 years or maybe even more. And he's spent almost all those focused in combustible dust. He's a certified fire protection specialist, certified fire and explosion investigator, certified fire investigator instructor, which really makes him very well suited for this discussion today on, on combustible dust and incident investigation. In terms of the interview, we're going to talk a bit about Kevin's background, why a company should consider investigating incidents that occur, what other groups might be involved, and what are some of the things that they're trying to get out of an incident investigation, these other groups, and how may they be different than the companies? What should facilities keep in mind before an incident happens and what kind of challenges come up in the processes? And I want to spend a little bit of time towards the end time with near misses and non-loss-causing incidents and get some of Kevin's expertise on that as well. Kevin, it has been almost two years since we had you on the podcast, which is too long. Um, but just in case the listeners didn't weren't listening back then or haven't went through the whole catalog, uh, what is your role in industries handling combustible dust? What kind of work do you do? What I do uh, as a combustible dust consultant, we perform DHAs for customers. I do fire and explosion investigations. And we also do... Uh, airflow audits, which help both inform the DHAs and tell us about the health of their main mitigation for combustible dust, which is the dust collection system. We help customers identify their hazards, and we also help them with their mitigation strategies, both in, in determining those and implementing those. Yeah, and as Kevin mentioned, Airdusco and their really extremely knowledgeable team down there do a lot of work preventing explosions, which is much appreciated by myself and, and everyone else in the industry. But they've also done a lot of incident investigation after incidents occurred and, and have a lot of you know knowledge and, and information to share with the community about that topic as well, both the lessons that are learned there. And that's kind of where the idea for this interview came from, is just what kind of challenges come up in this incident investigation. I think when Kevin and I originally talked about it, is a bit about you know how can a company prepare themselves in the right way to mitigate some of these challenges when they might come up. Probably a good place to sort of jump in there is just why, why should a company consider investigating an incident internally when it actually occurs? Anytime a combustible dust incident occurs, whether it is a fire, a flash fire, an explosion, or even just an unexpected combustible dust release, provided that they have the necessary expertise, they should investigate that internally. And we're going to talk more about the no loss incidents later on, but just focusing strictly on uh, on the type of incidents where you have a loss, you need to investigate or have this investigated so you can determine what caused it and you can then prevent that from happening again. The main thing that has to that needs to come out of any combustible dust incident is 
proper determination of the cause and origin and 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 the systemic failures or systemic uh, issues that led to that incident. And you have to determine that and determine that correctly. So then you can design your mitigation to prevent it in the future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you, you mentioned a couple of key words there that I just want to sort of highlight the, you know, the cause and the origin, what systemic failures led up to the incident happening. I guess before we, we sort of get into what groups are involved and all the challenges that come up, are there any other sort of key things that we're lurk- looking for in this incident um, investigation process? Just in, in determining cause and origin, you, you're looking at a lot of things. But the, the, the real key to all this in, in developing the proper mitigations to prevent it from happening in the future is looking at why your existing controls, such as they are, fail to prevent that incident from occurring. And I'm going to mention expertise a lot but uh, in this interview, but that takes a deep knowledge of what your controls are and how they work, why they work, and more importantly, why they didn't work in this case. You stole the words right from, I was going to put, and why they didn't work. <laughs> so you did that. Um, I guess, yeah, when, a, when an incident happens then, um, and, and we're going to focus again on these incidents causing loss. So what we're talking about here is loss of product property could be unfortunately life and limb as well. But, you know, incidents that cause loss and we're going to circle back to these non-loss causing incidents towards the end. But the ones that do cause loss, you know, what groups might be involved? Because you said something really interesting to me when we were talking about this beforehand about, well, I'll let you name the groups and talk about them, but how different groups are going to be looking at different things. The objectives are going to be different. And if the internal company team doesn't have a their own group investigating they may get different results and not and not particularly the ones that are going to prevent the incident from happening again in the future so let's talk about that what kind of groups might be there and what are they what are they looking for in terms of their approaches and their goals depending on the severity of the loss there could be several different investigations that are performed for instance if an explosion occurs that injures employees and 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 destroys equipment you're in the states anyway. You'll have a state or federal OSHA come and take a look at it. Outside the states, there will be the appropriate government safety officials that are going to want to look at the incident. Uh, their focus is going to be on uh, compliance and and enforcement. They're not necessarily looking for solutions beyond the, uh, compliance with the appropriate standards and regulations and laws. They want to know what you did wrong, basically. And in all honesty, most of the time, they actually require the customer to present them with a plan to mitigate the hazards, to bring them into compliance. And so they're not necessarily, while they may determine a uh, an origin and a cause and everything, they're not necessarily looking at what needs to take place to keep that from happening again. If a uh, your local fire department responded to the incident, uh, you may get an investigation from the uh, from the fire marshal or the uh, or a fire department investigator. They're looking at why it happened, and they have an extraordinarily uh, a deep wealth of uh, information on fires. That's what they do for a living. But they may or may not have any uh, experience or training with um, the combustible dust equipment or the types of dust that you have there and 
their their goal is not necessarily to help you develop your your strategies to prevent this from happening again. They just want to know why it happened and why people were hurt. I am not saying that at all to disparage fire professionals. Uh, I have the utmost respect for them, but a lot of times they don't have the specialized training that and experience that they need to properly analyze the the systemic failures or inadequacies uh, that, that were behind the cause of the fire. With any incident that causes a loss, you're also going to have more than likely an investigation by your insurance company. They're looking at loss prevention, both personnel and equipment. But again, they may or may not have the expertise in combustible dust mitigation strategies to offer any type of assistance to the company beyond uh, trying to save uh, money on the next loss. Again, that's not a disparagement. That's just a that's just a fact. They're looking at what can happen to to lower the cost of the loss next time. And finally, you know, you can have an internal investigation uh, by the facility EHS team, engineering, maintenance, management, all grouped together. And while they know their process equipment very well, they may or may not be familiar with the dust control equipment, as we have seen and as have been talked about on numerous podcasts here, a lot of times customers don't really understand their dust control and their dust mitigation as well as we would like. And again, without without that knowledge and expertise, they have a hard time developing the proper mitigation moving forward to prevent this from happening again. Yeah. And a kind of challenge didn't come up in the last one is, is really around that not knowing what you don't know. Exactly. You and I had a conversation about a future podcast episode we're going to do just before this call on material characteristics of dust that are that are not their combustion or deflagration characteristics, but are other properties like volumetric resistivity in that. We'll save the, the full discussion for the, the other podcast episode. But the point at the end of the day was that through an incident investigation that occurred, it was found that this scenario that was... Well, you mentioned you, you've been in this 30 years now and you never thought that could have happened. <laughs> so I'll leave that as a cliffhanger, I guess, for the others. <laughs> but, you know, it's not likely then that someone that's from the facility that has the broad exposure to their operations, the broad exposure to how dust collection works, the broad exposure maybe to combustible dust, would have the specific knowledge and understanding to be able to ferret out, you know, something that's more complex like that, uh, unless they've seen it. If, if you couldn't dream it up <laughs> in, in your 30 years of experience investigating this stuff, I have a hard time believing that myself or someone with a much more broad knowledge skill set with all that specific expertise would be able to, to kind of come up with that as a case. Does that sound like a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in the case that we were talking about, I went through several, several different uh, scenarios before I did an, uh, some additional research into the material and found out about some material handling characteristics and, and, and the volumetric resistivity that actually contributed greatly to, uh, to that particular explosion. So yeah, it's, uh, I had never considered that because I had never seen it, and I just uh, once I did see it, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to to think why I didn't consider that before. But it just the, these these uh, incidents can be very complex, and it takes some specific expertise and and knowledge to actually figure out what happened in a lot of cases. 
you've made me think of something I want to highlight before we talk about common challenges. Cause you, you mentioned a couple of groups. I think well, you have four here. You have the federal or state OSHA or government safety officials, wherever part of the world you're working in. You have the fire marshal and fire department. If they were involved, they may do an investigation. You have the insurance group and you have an internal investigation done by the company. Um, and we talked about the different goals that they might have, the different skill sets. One of the skill sets that might be lacking through those groups that might be provided by an external source, such as yourselves or others that do its investigation, is a really systematic approach to identifying what happened in an incident. And I don't know that systematic approach, but I know it includes things like hypothesis development, you know, doing hypothesis testing and and really figuring out, starting from a place of not knowing the answer. Because if you pretend that you know the answer from the start, then you'll have confirmation bias and chances are you'll find <laughs> that's the answer. Absolutely. Um, which I'm sure you've seen happen before. Oh, many times. I would I would add that as something that's like missing if you don't have an expert come in and do it is a systematic approach to evaluating the incident, figuring out the origin and causes, and then then the experience to actually say, well, what are the proper mitigation measures? And you, you said something early on that was, it was almost a throwaway or small statement, but I think it has a lot of, has a lot of weight when you said something about the mitigation measures that are in place, really understanding how they work. So if we think of, I don't know, any, any piece of safety equipment, think of an abort gate, um, what are the failure modes of it? Well, up here in Canada, the, the bearings can get stiff because of the cold sometimes and the thing might stay open. Well, if you don't have an intimate knowledge of all those safety equipment, all the dust collection equipment, you may miss that as a possible scenario. So that really specific expertise and understanding the equipment, something can only be developed over time. Something that generally an outside expert is going to be able to provide more than somebody potentially internally to the company. Well, and I can give you an example of, of, of that. In many, many different site visits that I've done for customers, they will have explosion binning on their, on their dust collector. And in areas that tend to get a lot of uh, winter weather or whatever, they may have weather covers on them. And it's quite possible that the people that were there when those were installed actually understood the, the purpose of those and understood how they worked. But I can't tell you how many times I've gone in after these vents and weather covers have been installed for 15 or 20 years. And I see that people have, have, uh, caulk them and used, you know, uh, the wrong type of caulk to actually hold them in place, or they've screwed them in place, which kind of defeats their purpose. And the whole thing with that boils down to they didn't understand how those weather covers worked, how they were supposed to release, uh, what was behind them, the fact that there was an explosion vent behind them, and. Thankfully, I wasn't on any of these job sites for um, an investigation. I was just there as part of a DHA or, or uh, one of the other services we offer. But when you see these type of things and you bring them up to the customer, a lot of times you get kind of a blank stare. Well, you know, the thing was hanging a little bit loose and so we fixed it. Well, actually, what you did to fix it by not, un not understanding how that particular piece of safety equipment works you actually made it less safe. You actually uh, are keeping it from performing its its job. And again, I'm not trying to disparage people. The dust collection system is not making you money in most cases. And you're very familiar, the customers are very familiar with their processes that actually lead to their end product, which they make money from. But 
a lot of times over over a certain number of years, the knowledge of how their safety systems work just disappears from the company. Yep. And that is why you need to bring in a fresh set of eyes that is looking for that type of thing. Somebody's listening to this might say, you know, so what <laughs> to the, the bolted over bed cover? So I'll, I'll give the example of three possible outcomes of such scenario if a deflagration did occur. One is that the vent covers is much stronger than it's designed for. So you get much higher overpressors before venting release with a chance of, you know, shrapnel and a bigger hole being than the vent covers projecting when the explosion propagates out. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is the dust collector vents in an inappropriate location. And we've seen this where the access hatch is blown off the other side back into the building because the the vent cover was in or the venting area was insufficient. And the third scenario is that the whole wall of the dust collector flies off because or falls down is, is more what commonly happens and acts as a vent cover because that small vent area is no longer weak enough point to to successfully vent. All three of those scenarios are going to be much more dangerous, cost a lot more money and have a lot more downtime than what's intended to happen, which is the thing vents out safely and you can bring you can clean it up and, and bring in a new vent and put it on and get up and running quite quickly. Absolutely. I just want to put that out there is those are three of the possible hypotheses I might come up with on what could happen afterwards because of that uh, strengthening of that vent panel um, inappropriately. It all boils down to a lack or a loss of the knowledge of how those systems are supposed to work. Yeah. So we, we have the different groups and we have, you know, an external investigation bringing someone like yourself. And we have a couple of key things that that brings a fresh set of eyes you know, that knowledge transfer that maybe didn't get passed down through the company as the system was installed and maintained over time. Um, hopefully the experts bringing that back to the, the forefront has that expertise. When you go in, I guess the, the question I want to try to figure is, okay, if I'm a facility owner operator listening to this or I'm an insurance agency that's working with facilities or even a consultant that's that's doing DHAs with them and I'm, I'm listening to this podcast, which we have many of all those groups, what kind of things should the company be keeping in mind before the incident investigation? I think the kind of flip side of that is what challenges do you see when you come through in your process that make it more difficult that you just wish you know companies had done some work beforehand to make it easier? What kind of things come up there? The thing that most facilities uh, want to do after they've had a fire or explosion is to get back to normal, get back into production as soon as possible. So... What I've seen happen uh, many times is their first goal is once everyone, the fire department is gone, if any employees were injured, uh, they are they are being taken care of by medical staff. The first thing that they want to do is clean up the area, fix or replace the equipment and get back into production. And I understand that uh, production is how they make their money. But unfortunately, that very cleanup and replacement of, of equipment or fixing the equipment that has been damaged can make any investigation infinitely more difficult because what is happening in that cleanup and that repair is you're destroying evidence that can lead an experienced investigator to discover your proper cause, origin, systemic failure or inadequacy. And if you don't have that information, you cannot accurately determine what happened, what caused it, what led up to it, and how to prevent it from happening again. 
what I recommend uh, to companies once they've had an incident and and everything has got, you know, like I said, the the fire department has left, uh, the injured uh, employees are taken care of. There are some things that they need to do to help ensure that a proper determination can be made and a proper mitigation strategy moving forward uh, can be implemented. The first thing that they need to do is secure the scene using hazard tape or, or somehow restricting the access to the area, not only where the incident occurred, but the associated equipment and whether it's process equipment or dust control equipment, they need to secure that area. What that does is it prevents destruction of, of the evidence that you need. Once they have that area secured, they need to document the scene. The sooner that they can get pictures taken of, of all the equipment and, and everything that was involved in that, uh, in that incident, the better. The more pictures that are taken in the immediate aftermath of an incident, the more information that the investigator who may be on site later that day or maybe a week or more before they before everyone gets in to to do the investigation, the more good information that investigator has to work with. Uh, and the last thing I recommend is even if you're doing an internal investigation, even if OSHA and the fire department, the insurance company is coming out, I recommend that they get someone that is a uh, qualified uh, investigator that has training and experience with combustible dust equipment and mitigation strategies. And the sooner that they do that, the better. That particular expertise, and it does not have to be me. I'm not just promoting myself. There, there are others out there that do this. But the more specialized and knowledgeable that that uh, investigator is, the more likely it is that the proper cause and origin can be determined. The proper or the correct or accurate systemic failures and inadequacies can be that led up to the incident can be uh, identified. And once you identify those, then you can develop your proper mitigation strategy to ever prevent that from happening again. No one wants to have an incident, but if you do have an incident, the very least you need to do is learn from it so you can prevent it from happening in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we see quite, I think this is probably going to dovetail into the discussion of, of what we should be investigating, just loss cause incidents or, or otherwise. But you think of any of the, well, even the chemical safety boards, their major incident investigation reports that they've released, in almost all of them, there's precursor information available, whether that's fires, deflagrations that didn't cause loss, upset conditions, spills of dust, unsafe accumulations of dust, we'll, we'll call it. Uh, these are all precursors that lead up to the event. But what you really don't want to happen is have, you know, you want to be listening to those because they're telling you something about the process that's not working right. And what's the other way? I'm trying to think of a better way to say it. it just like you said, if you have an incident, the last thing you want to do is have another incident as soon as you start the system back up. We saw it in, in British Columbia where they had their first sawmill explosion in 2012 that everyone you know, couldn't have believed would have occurred. But then just a short time later, there's another sawmill explosion at a totally different location, totally different part of British Columbia, several hours away. And that made the community sort of wake up and say, oh, this is a possibility of all the lumber mills are running. But the, the point there is that having back-to-back incidents, having incident where you for, didn't learn the lessons the first way is just not a, not a very good thing for employee morale. It's not a very good thing for 
company branding, for lack of a better word, or position. They be points to the market. So I guess all I'm, I'm trying to make a case here for for coming in and investing in it and preventing it. If if a case even needs to be made, I'm hoping it doesn't. But if it does, then there's some other pointers you can you can add to the list there. Talking about incidents where there isn't a loss. Basically, if it was a, a fire, or flash fire, an explosion, uh, even if it was a small one and nobody was injured, no equipment was damaged, that is basically you got lucky. It could have been worse. And the next time it might be worse. Uh, if you don't investigate that and determine what caused it, uh, you may not be lucky the next time it happens. Um, I've got an example of that. I have a customer who many years ago now had several small explosions in, in a heated mixer. They they saw them. They actually had security cameras that that caught these little explosions. It would basically lift the lid of the mixer a little bit and then let it set back down. And they never did anything about that. This went on and it happened on a fairly regular basis over a period of, of, of a few years, up until one day they had a catastrophic explosion in a mixer that propagated through the duct system and ended up killing an employee on another level of the facility. They did investigate that, uh, but what came out of that, the, number one, the plant manager at that time was absolutely devastated by that event. He blamed himself for not having investigated that previously and basically at least having the possibility of preventing the the loss of that employee's life. And honestly, uh, he was a good man and it has haunted him ever since that he lost an employee over something that might have been prevented had they had they investigated the smaller explosions earlier. But combustible dust incidents are not just limited to fires and explosions. An unexpected dust release, even dust collection system issues like you know, broken or leaking ducts, high differential pressures across a bag house when you're not expecting that. Uh, all these can indicate larger systemic issues. And if you don't understand what caused those, it can lead to more severe incidents later. As a, as a for instance, if you have a dust cloud release, and nothing happens other than you release dust into the into the building or uh, into a compartment. Uh, it might seem innocuous, but if that same release happened in the presence of a credible ignition source, you can have a flash fire and explosion. So, just because you have a small combustible dust incident and you got lucky that nothing happened, you should still uh, conduct an investigation, either external or internal. But if you do an internal investigation of, let's say, a, a, a dust cloud release, uh, you should follow that up by a more in-depth engineering study to determine why this happened and what can be done to prevent that. Because preventing the things that can lead up to having a fire or explosion can prevent them uh, just straight up. Yeah, I think it's one that's a pretty powerful story and it can happen to really anyone that's involved in the process if you yeah it can happen to anyone that's involved in, in the in the process that if something happens they end up blaming themselves and that's almost reason enough to really look at these so combustible dust it's it is challenging to ignite a dust cloud if you try i'll say it that way and what i mean when i say that is 
if you're doing MIE tests, um, minimum ignition energy tests for a dust cloud in, in the standard apparatus, when you're doing the tests, you may do 10 shots. And I can't remember the exact criteria, but you may find that five shots don't explode, same conditions, and five shots do. That's considered, you know, an explosible mixture. That's above the MEC because that MA, that ignition energy can ignite that dust cloud. Um, say it's six and four, just to give an example. Six times ignited, four times it didn't. Um, so other same conditions, we have the same scenarios, we try to do the same thing, and we rarely get to ignite six times and four times it didn't. What happens a lot of time in industry is when they get that case where it didn't ignite in a much more complex system, they think, oh, well, that can't ignite. But no, even if we go to the most simplest system, we're trying to ignite the thing four to six or four to 10 times, we get it wrong and it doesn't work. So you're just hitting one of those statistically significant scenarios where it didn't work. Um, that doesn't mean the next three or four times you try that's not going to have an explosion. And depending on your your processing operation, the frequency of that, that scenario occurring may be low. Maybe it's only five times a year. So, you know, if you do the math, you're going to find out that once a year, you're going to have this thing have a large explosion and four to five times you're going to have it have a, you know, not ignite, even though the same conditions are there. So it's the, the further you can investigate more and involving investigate on these leading indicators, these precursors, uh, the, the higher chance you have of reducing loss over time. Absolutely. This has been a really interesting discussion, Kevin. Anything else you want to leave folks off on on this topic of combustible investigation, common challenges before we close out this interview? The one thing that that I would like to leave the uh, audience with is make sure, especially if you have a, a large incident, that you do the things I talked about before. You secure the scene. You document it exhaustively. Uh, there are no such thing as too many pictures. Uh, right after an event happens. But even if you just have a minor incident like we just discussed, investigate it. If you can't determine what caused it, bring in somebody that can help you determine what caused it because just being lucky once or twice is is no indication that uh, you won't be lucky the next time. And going back to uh, what I was talking about with documenting the scene and securing it and everything, the more accurate information that any investigator has to work with, the more likely they are to determine the proper cause and origin. And when you're, when you're doing an, uh, an investigation uh, per NFPA standards, you have to follow the scientific method. Uh, you may not be able to say 100% this is what caused it, but as long as you have it narrowed down you have done your proper testing and you've tested your hypotheses and, and you have determined to a reasonable certainty that this is what caused it. You have a much better likelihood of preventing that from happening again. And if nothing else, we have to learn from these incidents so that they don't recur. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a, a great place to leave off this interview. We are going to have Kevin back on next week talking about spark detection, arresting, aborting, and extinguishing systems, which I think is probably, maybe we call it the top 10 things Kevin has learned about those systems from incident investigations. But we'll we'll cover that in, in next week's episode and, and get the input on that. I do want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your your knowledge with our community here. Um, and thank you for the work that Airdesco is doing out there in in the prevention side, they're excellent in that area. Then also looking at instance after they happen, how do we 
mitigate and prevent them from happening in the future. So thanks for coming on, Kevin. Well, and I want to thank you, Chris, for the opportunity to come on and talk about this because this is something that I feel very strongly about. And um, I, the way I look at my job is my goal is that everyone that comes to work in the morning goes home safely that, that evening. I take that very seriously. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Kevin. And we'll be talking again soon because I'll be on the podcast next week. Thanks, sir. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Kevin Cardwell, Combustible Dust Consultant for Airdusco Engineering and Design Services based out of Tennessee. We talked about common challenges in combustible dust incident investigation. We talked a bit about Kevin's background, the kind of things he does in industry, including dust hazard analysis, fire and explosion investigation, fire and explosion investigation training, airflow audits, really a lot of topics around combustible dust and powder processing industries. We talked about why a company should consider doing an internal investigation for their incidents. So really the, the key point is to try to figure out why the existing controls didn't work um, and how to prevent that from happening again in the future. And if you can do that, then you're going to be able to avoid loss both from a personnel standpoint, but also financial standpoint, um, an operations shutdown standpoint, which is often the most expensive standpoint. That's really the goal of doing these incident investigations. We talked a lot about what groups might be involved and this was something that's eye-opening for me when I had initial discussion with Kevin on this, just thinking about what groups are going to be investigating and what the different goals, outcomes, and, and knowledge levels should be expected there. So we have state and federal OSHA or other government safety officials, depending on where you're at, um, the fire marshal, fire department team, um, depending on if the fire department was involved in the initial um, response, the insurance team, and then the company team, internal investigation team. We talked about different goals. So, you know, OSHA or the, the safety officials are going to be looking at compliance and legal requirements. I'm not necessarily looking to tell you how to prevent again in the future, but they do want to see a plan on how you're going to do it. Insurance is looking much more at equipment, product, downtime, the financial loss, because that's their their you know biggest focus in, in terms of what they're protecting against. Um, so it's going to be a slightly different view and a slightly different set of experience that they'll be looking at than an internal investigation or than the fire marshals, fire department. And the, the whole point is that all these groups are doing important work for the goals they're achieving um, and bringing their own knowledge and skill sets. But generally, all, all of them are going to have much more broader knowledge and skill set than somebody who's looked at, you know, a lot of instances in a facility that operates like yours or the type of equipment that operates like yours, that experience with the safety systems. That's really what, a you know, somebody who's an experienced practitioner brings in, in addition to a systematic approach to, you know, identifying the origin and cause of an incident once it happens. So that's really the the things you get from bringing in that external consultant or external body uh, like Airdesco or, or someone else, a similar type of work in that process is really a you know tailored specific experience in your process and your operation to try to get the best chance of preventing this from happening again in the future. We talked about common challenges around combustible dust. We talked about an example. We talked about weather coverings on vents and knowledge being lost over the years in terms of the initial installation and why it was done that way, um, how it can be lost in the company. And that goes right to the incident investigation then as well. That knowledge there isn't present when they're doing the investigation. The common challenges really are around cleanup and replacement of equipment too soon. The flip side of that is called destroying evidence. So you cannot figure out what actually happened at the end of the day. Kevin gave a couple of good steps here. So one, make sure you secure the scene with, scene with hazard tape, whatever it's going to be. Keep people out of there. Document the scene exhaustively, photographs, descriptions, whatever you can do. And bring in somebody externally to support that effort. 
Um, certainly at the stage of having OSHA come in, fire marshals, it's really nice to have somebody involved in that that is on the investigation side, that has that expertise, and kind of say, whoa, whoa, wait, you know, we shouldn't move that yet. And we had a really good conversation with Dr. Suzanne Smith back in episode 78 of the podcast. Funny enough, that was the one we did right before Kevin's podcast, and we'll get it in 79, talking about a case study she did at a grain milling facility. She talked about how they had to go up in the boom lift every day, every time they moved a piece of equipment to see what was behind it because they couldn't actually get into the building. Well, those sort of things that experienced in, investigators can be able to bring. I'm sure you can document the scene exhaustively, but what's behind the equipment, what's not being told through those photographs and narratives and other things that you're able to capture at that time. And then we sort of closed around with this topic of what should be investigated. So sh- sure, you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of attention given when you have a large product or equipment loss, certainly loss of life and limb will cause that. But when should you think about looking at non-loss causes, incidents, and really it should be part of your entire safety operation to look at those as they're developing and really keep track of them, keep an eye on them. Are your leading indicators of safety getting worse over time or are they getting better over time? If you start to look at those um, more frequently, then you can prevent getting to the case where you have some um, large loss that happens over time. So I appreciate, again, Kevin coming on. I appreciate everyone listening to the podcast. I hope you're having a safe and productive week out there. Um, I appreciate everything you're doing in the industry's handling combustible dust, and I hope you're staying safe out there. I look forward to talking again next week on the podcast. 